the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon, and I welcome you to this Tuesday edition of Lifeline for the, uh, what is it here, 24th day of April. Now, we've got to clear something up. Northbound 17, there is an overturned big rig that has spilled 35 tons of sardines on the roadway. Is that? <laughs> we got to check in with Michael Bennett later on tonight because that story sounds fishy to me. I don't know about that. 35 tons of sardines? Whew! It's a mess, isn't it? All right, let's get down to cases. We had a great show planned for you tonight. As we lead off, there are few people in the media today who offer such keen insights and historical and constitutional perspective to today's issue as my first guest. He is a student of American history, a lawyer by trade, a talk show host, an author by passion. He's Bob Zadek, host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. His latest book, by the way, is Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. Bob Zadek, great to have you join us. Greg, thanks very much for inviting me back to your show. You're a great host. I'm honored to be your guest tonight. Now, Robert, I can't wait to get your take on the news. It came out late last week on Friday. It was announced that the Democrat National Committee filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the Russian government, the Trump campaign, WikiLeaks, aside of important judicial questions like who has jurisdiction over this. Well, what is this all about? I mean, Mueller is still in the middle of his investigation. I realize there's controversy. There's things that seem to kind of be bogging things down. And you add the Comey book to the mix now, and it's almost you almost need a scorecard to keep track of all of the cast of characters here. But is the Democrat National Committee really serious in thinking that somehow they're going to prove in a court of law that there was intentional collusion between the Trump campaign, the Russians, WikiLeaks at all to somehow derail the election? That's not the purpose to prove anything. The purpose is to keep it in the news. And by the way, the sound you hear is me smiling from ear to ear. Why am I smiling? First of all, because you're asking me why Democrats are doing something. Is there anything about me that makes you believe that I think like or know how a Democrat thinks? Give me a break. (laughs) Second of all, on behalf of the legal profession, all of whom or most of whom are out upgrading the cars they drive and the homes they live in because of all of the fees that will be generated, but more seriously and more to the point, this is simply, uh, it's bought, the plaintiff is the Democratic Party. That, I think, gives us a hint that maybe there are political overtones in all of this. Needless to say, nobody has studied the law. Nobody has made a decision the way I advise my clients. 
don't go to court unless you have a high level of confidence that you're going to win. That's why courts are there, to resolve honest disputes when the parties cannot agree on something. This has nothing to do with litigation. This is simply taking a purely political process and moving it into the courts because you're assured of being on the evening news between now and the end of time. So it really isn't high confidence here, it's just high drama. It doesn't, whether there's confidence or not, it's not confidence or lack of confidence that is the motivating factor. This is done where the advice came from publicists, not from lawyers. The advice came from people who manage public opinion, not from people who manage legal affairs. Yeah, when I heard it first announced, I thought, this seems to be strangely reminiscent of, uh, what did Clinton call it? Oh, yes, the vast right-wing conspiracy. Uh, We know certainly that Hillary has been on her campaign across the country in uh, her book tour, What Happened, trying to explain to people what happened. I, I, I think she ought to look in the mirror to get the answer to that. But your sense is then Craig, this is the vast this is the vast insanity conspiracy yeah yeah that it certainly seems to be so the case I and, and, I, and I think and I think you're going right to the heart of the point here and that is that Democrats are also keenly aware that we are headed into midterm elections and anything that they can do to try and bring attention to their cause so to speak is going to be in uh, at least perhaps in their perspective in their best interest to try and sway voters come November. Uh, of course it is. Everything they do, every penny they spend is, to use your phrase, Craig, which is exactly accurate, to try to sway voters. What's happening is there are polls starting to creep out that indicate that maybe the Democratic landslide that was at one time anticipated, maybe it's not going to happen. I, you don't hear any joy in my voice. I don't have any horse in that race. But those in the Democratic Party who were starting to think about sweeping both houses or sweeping the House and not the Senate, uh, they were pretty optimistic only a few weeks ago. And now, based upon early polling, they're not as optimistic, and therefore the stakes go up, money gets spent, Everything gets tried. After all, they have no branches of the executive or the legislative right now. They haven't got much to lose. It's almost taking on a bit of a feeling of uh, an act of desperation here. And since we have, uh, since our audience um, knows the New Testimony, the New Testament, sorry about that, this is to borrow a phrase, a bit of a Hail Mary. Yeah, (laughs) no doubt about that. What is your sense, as you have followed this story, Robert, in relationship to First, the the release of the uh, the book, the memoir by the former FBI director, uh, that along with what you're witnessing in relationship to the Mueller investigation, uh, and it almost seems to be a, a tertiary side circus related to uh, Trump attorney Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels, at all, is some of this beginning to lose steam, lose momentum? Well, it's hard to say. It'll have a certain core momentum because there is a certain subset of the voting public who, or the viewing public who just can't get enough of this. Uh, many people read the Inquirer. They can't get enough of that. And this is salacious, juicy, 
afternoon television kind of stuff. So, of course, it captures the imagination of many people. It's not going to affect uh, the elections, I don't think. Of course, asking me about how I feel about Comey's book and Comey's book tour. He was in San Francisco just last night at the current theater at a sellout crowd. Uh, it was, I am told, very entertaining. Entertaining is not a standard that I use in determining how elections and how politicians rise and fall, but I'm told it was entertaining. But that whole issue, there are so many sub-stories in the Comey book, in whether or not he uh, violated and he shared secrets that were confidential and he shouldn't have. All of this, there are layers and layers and layers that a lay audience such as you and I and our listeners can't begin to make a decision who's right and who's wrong. It's like, <clears throat> all it is is we are bystanders, we are the viewing public, we are watching what's going on and waiting to see how it all plays out. But nobody can possibly make up their voting mind based upon a book, the evening news, an appearance at the current theater. It is below irrelevance when it comes to how one should vote and to what party one should take allegiance. Yeah, and sadly, to your point regarding the the entertainment value, sadly, there is a growing percentile of Americans in this country for whom the deciding factor when they go into the polling place and cast their vote is based more upon who's more entertaining as opposed to who can actually get the job done, bring the goods, make a difference in the country. It's a sad commentary at so many levels in our country today. What is your sense, Robert, in terms of as, as you watch all of this play out, what is your gut? tell you in relationship to the allegations concerning Russia? I mean, that, that, a, that a foreign power has interest in influencing the outcome of an election, that's probably not surprising. Um, but your sense in terms of whether or not there was actual collusion here, what do you think? I, I can answer your question and our discussion about the alleged Russian meddling in our election with a high level, with an almost uncharacteristic level of confidence that I am right in what I think and what I understand. First of all, talk about much ado about nothing. The Russians have spent in their, quote, meddling, by most accounts, somewhere around 70 or $80 million in ads and and, and social media expenditures a lot on Facebook and on other media. Seventy or eighty million dollars in a presidential campaign where over two billion with a B was spent. If our country is at risk by an expenditure of seventy million dollars, if seventy million dollars of social media advertising threatens the United States of America. What in the world are we doing yeah, here? Good point. How can- and if at the end of the day, Facebook is your primary source to help guide you as to what candidate is the most qualified to lead the nation, that's also a pretty sad, uncomely uh, t- uh, testimony, too, isn't it? And second of all, Craig, there is so much hypocrisy. I rail against hypocrisy. We have been meddling in other countries' elections for three decades, in Central America, in Nicaragua, in Honduras, in Cuba. We 
our standard operating procedure is to meddle in elections. In Iran, we brought down a popularly elected government and put in a Shah because he was favorable to us. We have been meddling in elections forever, despite George Washington's warning, do not interfere in the domestic affairs of other countries. We knew that was a bad idea in 1788, and yet we do it to this day. How dare us as a country get upset and angry and feel threatened when somebody else adopts the very same weapons that we've been using for three decades. Yeah, undoubtedly, this- the, the height of hypocrisy, we want to beat our chests and pound the table out of anger. We are just shocked, shocked to find out that this is going on, failing totally to recognize that in many respects, the matter of meddling in foreign elections is something that is not only, well, I won't say entirely uniquely American, but certainly, certainly well perfected by America. If you've just joined us, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek is with us today. Bob's insights on the top stories of the week, what's been dominating the headlines, bringing a bit of constitutional, historical, and sanity to all of these matters. When we come back, we're going to continue our visit with Bob, talk about the release of a new film that um, debuted, in fact, just a week ago in theaters around the country, some limited release, but a film that, quite frankly, ought to almost be required viewing for every future voter in this nation because the constitutional questions that it raises are extremely serious ones. When you talk about David and Goliath, what an amazing story. A look at the Little Pink House and other issues. Our conversation with Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. Information, by the way, on the web at bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. You can catch a show Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. All right, a brief timeout. Let's, uh, let's get into that fishy tale, shall we? Now, the allegation is there's 35 tons of sardines (laughs) sitting on the 17. Oh, that's going to make that a whole new definition to a fishy commute, isn't it? Let's get the latest. We've got Michael Bennett standing by in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are visiting today with syndicated talk show host and author Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, locally here in the Bay Area. You can catch the program Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And, uh, Bob, you actually called this to my attention. It's a story about a film that probably won't win the Academy Award, but it almost ought at the core to be required viewing for every high school student, a film that goes to the core of a question that has been debated, and that is ultimately who gets to decide when it comes to matters of property ownership, who gets to decide what is considered or construed a benefit to the community and what is not. Tell us a bit about the background of this film as it relates to a infamous Supreme Court case. Sure. It starts, as many stories do, with the Constitution itself, specifically the Bill of Rights. Uh, The Fifth Amendment Uh, to the Bill of Rights provides that the government, the federal government, uh, cannot take a citizen's property. You cannot, the government cannot take a citizen's property except under two conditions. Condition number one, it is taking the property for public use. 
And public use means what you think it means. A road, and the road is designed to go right where your house is, and your house would cause the road to have to be diverted, or a school, or a hospital, or an army base. So there has to be, number one, a public use. Number two, the government must pay you the fair value of your house. And that has been the standard like forever because private property is sacred and the government cannot just take it. Well, what happened was in New London, Connecticut, New London was was down in the tooth, its tax base was declining, and the government, the city of New London and the state of Connecticut embarked upon a plan. They were going to, they saw a community where lower middle class people were living that they decided this community has a very low tax base. If we can kick these people out of their homes, take the property and put Pfizer. Pfizer wanted to build a, a, a facility there. The big pharmaceutical the company. Or sell That's Pfizer, the, big, the pharmaceutical the, country, yeah, yeah. company. Pfizer would pay oodles of taxes. The citizens of New London, except for the ones who got thrown out, would benefit with higher tax base. It would, be, it would rejuvenate the area. The problem was it wasn't taking the property for a public use. They were going to take the property from one citizen to give it to another citizen, albeit a corporation. Well, were they allowed to do that? They argued it's not for a public use, but for a public purpose. That is, increase the tax base. Well, a novel theory. That uh, Suzette Kilo, a homeowner who lived in a little pink house in the allegedly blighted area, refused to sell. And she hired, or she was represented by the most wonderful organization in the country, the Institute for Justice, which defends for free property owners and other people who are being oppressed by government. They took the case, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in one of the most loathsome and hated decisions in the history of the Supreme Court, it decided five to four that a government could take private property for a public Benefit that is simply to increase the tax base. And the Supreme Court asked one of the litigants, the attorney for the government, if you wanted to condemn a Motel 6 to put in a Ritz-Carlton, under your view of the Constitution, could you do that? And the attorney said, yes, we could. In other words, there are no limits to what a government to prevent the government from taking people's property. That is the story of Kilo uh, versus the city of New London. Now, the story has kind of a happy ending. Kilo lost the case. Her house was destroyed, as were 70 or 80 other houses. Then you know what happened? Pfizer changed his mind. <laughs> the property was never developed. And on all of those lands where there were 70 or 80 citizens living happily. You know who lives there now? Feral cats. That's all that's left on the property. The good news is the country was so angry that states enacted at the state level 
anti-kilo decisions that prohibited governments within the state from taking property for a public benefit. It had to be for a public use. So there was such an opposition to the kilo decision, good has come of it. And as a minor postscript, Justice Kennedy, the swing judge on the Supreme Court, who wrote the majority opinion, he publicly apologized Sometime later, he said, I was wrong. It was a terrible decision. I apologize. Well, that story, the story of Suzette Kilo and the Little Pink House, was made as an independent film. It is now in theaters in the Bay Area. I saw it over the weekend uh, in San Francisco, where it is playing in one theater. I commend both the story and understanding the policy behind it. And I think, you know, that there, there are a number of lessons here, but to go directly to your point and what made this decision so disturbing is, is the fact that it suddenly now moved outside of the, the historical traditional bonds, as you say, of saying, well, this is going to be directly for a community benefit because we're tearing down this blighted neighborhood and we're putting in a, uh, a new school. We're building a road that people will now be able to uh, avoid traffic congestion. Here is a case where it was essentially going from one private owner to another private owner, and sort of their out was, well, this is going to generate more tax revenue, which will ultimately benefit the community. Well, if you use that standard, then you could almost go in and say a city has the right to condemn a church which pays no income taxes, it generates no sales tax revenue because it doesn't sell anything, and then essentially say it will be to the greater benefit to tear down the church and put up a Walmart or put up a bar, for that matter, that will generate alcohol taxes and sales taxes and uh, presumably will pay a property taxes and other things that ultimately will go into the city coffers. I mean, the degree to which something like this, this decision, could be manipulated would, would I think, certainly, as you're suggesting, Robert, have the founding fathers turning in their graves. And. Private property has always been, it's part of our national ethos, that private property is sacred. Well, private property just became unbelievably unsacred if Kilo is the law of the land, which it is, except where it has been modified by state action. And historically, it is an offensive, this- offensive decision. And historically, the United States is is unique in this. I know certainly in, in my travels, and I happen to own property out of this country, that the high regard to which, almost sacred to which property rights, property ownership are assigned in the United States is, is unique to us. There are other countries where uh, the term squatting uh, can be very readily applied, where if a piece of property appears to be abandoned and there's no presence of a landlord or uh, ownership at any time, you can literally come in there, squat in there, put up a little uh, shack, and before you know it, suddenly it's yours uh, just because. And that issue of protecting property lines, protecting the integrity, registering of, of property, all of this is, is handled, as I suggest, almost in a sacred fashion from, from a historical standpoint to our founding fathers, has it not? It has been. It's, it's essential to a well-functioning economy. And, Craig, what I've learned over the years when I have participated in panels and discussions and meetings where third world countries, which have a dysfunctional economy, when they want to 
start to prosper, the first thing they ask of American lawyers and American legislatures is help us build a system of property rights and protecting contracts because they know without a firmly established system of property rights, an economy cannot survive. It is a core tenet of economic understanding. And once we start to destroy or even weaken property rights, we're going down a path that has a very unpleasant end. Bob Zadek, our special guest today. Bob is the host of the Bob Zadek Show, nationally syndicated. You can hear the program here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. We're going to take a brief time out, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, I want to dive into what what may be an area that isn't yet mature enough yet in terms of the, the ethical question, but maybe um, bears a very serious discussion. Our, our country, for example, has been wrestling with the question of bioethics in recent decades, in the advent of things like cloning and stem cell research. The question of that we can is one thing, that we should is another, and where do we draw the line? Well, now a whole other emerging arena, and it's been interesting to note that, that one of the people that's helped advance some of this tremendously has also been one of its biggest critics, Elon Musk. We'll talk more about that as our conversation with radio talk show host Bob Zadek continues. Information on the web at bobzadek, Z-A-D-E-K dot com. All right, let's get some more information with Michael Bennett, who stands by with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center at 531. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Thank you, kind sir. Welcome back to the program. We continue on our conversation. By the way, a sidebar, if you are somebody who likes reasoned discourse by rational minds addressing relevant issues, then we certainly urge you to tune in Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, for the Bob Zadek Show. Bob is a nationally syndicated talk show host, a lawyer by trade. He's also a best-selling author. His latest book, by the way, I'll mention, uh, is called... Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. You can get information about the book on Bob's website, bobzadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. And again, his program, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. Bob, I made reference before the break to Elon Musk. It's interesting. He has been a, a, a strong vocal critic of advancement of so-called AI or artificial intelligence. And as much as he's put kind of the warning out there on that, um, he's also been a pioneer in the push forward with robotics, although some might argue that uh, Tesla's beginning to repeat some of the mistakes that Detroit made with robotics and automation some 40 years ago that's kind of hampered the the production of the Tesla. But it, it raises the question, as we've seen cases of automobile accidents, we've seen in one case Uber pullback on their self-driving driving cars. As much as the country has begun to engage in dialogue over questions related to bioethics, cloning, stem cell research, that we can, should we, the big question, are we now moving into an area where we need to start igniting the debate and the dialogue concerning, what do we call it, techno-ethics over robotics, self-driving cars, and the like? Techno-ethics has captured my imagination. It is a fascinating topic that gets no press, no attention, and it will sooner or later 
affect every person on the planet. And just to flesh this issue out, I'll pose one really simple hypothetical, Craig, uh, and I'll pose it to you as the surrogate for all of your listeners. You are driving a car down the road, and in front of you, crossing where you cannot stop, is a woman pushing a baby stroller with a young baby inside. And the choice is, you, the, the choice that you are given under the hypothetical is, you either hit the woman, probably kill or harm her and her baby, or you can drive, swerve to the right, and go down an embankment, maybe die, maybe get harmed, or maybe be okay. And you have almost no time to decide. Craig, which would you do? I would like to think, uh, sitting here in the convenience and comfort and security of my studio, that the decision that I would make, regardless of the potential outcome and harm to myself, would be to swerve, giving recognition to the value of not one but two human lives, and particularly a, a young child who's got their entire life in front of them. So I would think I'd do a, a, a hard right and pray and hope for the best. And you would want to make that decision because that's how you would see yourself. That's the decision you would want to make. Now, and I respect that, it's your decision. Okay, now I'm going to change the facts slightly, Craig. Same fact pattern, except you're in a self-drive car. There isn't even a steering wheel. Now, the car will process the information, the embankment, the possible harm to you, the woman with the baby carriage, and that car has been programmed to make a decision. And maybe the program is the woman dies and you live because maybe the programmer, whom you've never met, decided safety of the driver is the most important. There is an example where some programmer writing code has made a decision who lives and who dies and taken that decision from you. Now, the results of that, and that hypothetical can be changed to thousands of others. And just one other example to show you how complex this all is. You're driving down a road and there is an obstacle in front of you. You have to swerve to the left or to the right. If you swerve to the left, you will hit a small, weak car, a small, not very strong car, and probably severely damage or kill that driver, but you'll be okay because the car you hit is not, is not very strong. Or you can swerve to the right and hit a Hummer and probably not do much damage to the Hummer, but lots of damage to you. So what will you do? Well, the car will make a decision for you. And probably the car is programmed to hit the small car. That's probably how the programmer has designed it, so that the driver is protected. Now, that means that if you're an insurance company and you know that, you're going to charge much higher insurance rates to insure these small cars because they're the ones that are programmed to get hit. So the effects on society are overwhelming, both economic and moral, and decisions are being taken from us and placed into a chip. And 
How do we deal with that? That profound life and death decision has not been discussed. We don't get a vote on it. We don't get to decide how it should be programmed. We don't even know how it's programmed. We get into the car, we turn on the on switch, and we pick up a book, and the car takes control. What a strange way to live. And, you know, it, it does raise so many questions, both moral, ethical, and certainly legal at a level we could argue that, well, it was not my decision to make. It's programmed into the car by some nameless, faceless, pimple-faced, uh, you know, computer programmer somewhere whom I'll never meet. And yet we have to say, well... I made a conscious decision to purchase that automobile. I got into that automobile. I set out in that automobile heading down a ribbon of concrete at 60 miles an hour that is essentially, under the right circumstances, a lethal weapon. And though the decision to avoid one obstacle and injure somebody else was not mine to make, but rather the cars, does that in any wise still release me from the responsibility of what happens since I'm the owner of the vehicle? Responsibility. You know how important the word responsibility is to us libertarians, and now responsibility is being taken from us. Then you get to all of the probably less important but really interesting issues. How do you know your car hasn't been programmed to drive you every day past a drive-by Burger King? It'll look for the Burger King in Google Maps and take you by it every day in the hopes of making a sale. And maybe even the people who design the system get paid a commission because everybody will know when the car took you to a Burger King. And so the loss of of dominion over your own life, once we have self-drive stuff, is overwhelming. Pretty soon, we are the robots, and the robots are making all the decisions. And that, Craig is mighty scary stuff. You, you bet, because suddenly now we've, we've turned this direction. We have, we have navigated into very um, uncharted waters here that suddenly it's no longer these tools at the disposal for my convenience, but ultimately I'm still in charge, to now me suddenly by default becoming subservient to these tools. Oh, to be sure, they're still there for my convenience, but there's this hidden, unseen hand that's playing a role in this. And and to, to take your scenario to an even more uh, troubling level, not just the notion that they could program it to direct you to, you know, the certain locations that could be of commercial benefits to a third party, but what about the hacker who's able to now get in and program your automobile to take you to some place where not only does the manufacturer of the car not want you to go or have any design for you to go, but you have no interest in going there in either. But suddenly somebody was able to get in and wirelessly hack into your system. The kind of havoc that this can wreak, and, and I think what's, what's sad, and, and to get to the heart of the point that Bob Zadek is making, that we have not sat down and begun to wrestle through these questions in advance. I mean, for example, you've got to think that there were discussions related to, okay, uh, we may possibly be able to advance the technology behind heart transplants. What if we can transplant a heart out of a pig into a human being, and is that is there potential there to sustain life in, in doing all of that? Well, 
there are some serious bioethical questions that need to be addressed. Sadly, it seems as if we're heading down the road to do because we can without asking the question, because we can, should we nevertheless? And these kinds of issues, these kinds of dilemmas and debates are a big part of what Bob does every week. And uh, you've heard just a little small smattering in the 45 minutes we've had together tonight to, um, to tackle some of the issues. And Bob dives into all of this with great gusto and a lot of very well-known, very smart, high-profile guests every week. So um, as I mentioned earlier, if you are somebody who loves reasoned discourse, rational minds, talking about relevant issues, then you're going to want to make it a date. Sunday mornings, check out the Bob Zadek show on 860 AM, The Answer. By the way, you can get information about Bob's latest book. We mentioned it a moment ago, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. That plus a host of podcasts and past shows all available and other resources too on Bob's website at bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. Robert, as always, I appreciate the time and the insights and look forward to getting you back on again real soon. Greg, it's been an honor to be on your show and to share some time with your audience. Have a good evening. You too. We'll do it again soon. There's Bob Zadek. All right, bobzadek.com, the uh, spot to get more information about his program. And uh, we invite you to check it out Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. It's our sister station here in the Bay Area. Okay, 548, a little bit late. Let's get caught up traffic-wise first. We'll stop in at the KFAX Traffic Center, see what's going on with Michael Bennett. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if you think those were tough questions to wrestle with, try this one on for size. Uh, Teacher suspicious that there might have been a potential case of child abuse. And and, uh, let me hasten to add, not because of anything that the child displayed that didn't show up crying or with bruises or, you know, strange marks on their body, but but, but rather what appears to be simply... um, observing the appearance of one of the parents, Uh, a parent who, uh, not unlike myself, is big and strong and powerful and motorcycle. You don't believe that, do you? (laughs) Well, uh, at least a parent who uh, maybe looks more like a hell's angel than anything else. But is that necessarily an indicator of child abuse? And, And if you somehow, for whatever reason, conclude it is, does it rise to the occasion of strip Searching a three-year-old? Wow. Well, if you think this is something somebody made up for a movie, uh, you'd be wrong, because it did actually happen. And we've got the details now, as we're joined by constitutional lawyer and the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Uh, Brad, I don't know that there's ever a good time or a reasonable occasion in which a um, a preschool child should be strip-searched without the presence of a parent or a physician, but uh, that indeed was apparently the case. And and from what I'm reading, am I correct in saying it happened not only once but twice to the same child? Yes, uh, unfortunately it did happen twice. A second search was conducted by the social worker uh, when the child was four, uh, this time continuously photographing the child, uh, but again the search failed to uh, produce any evidence of abuse. Uh, this is just, it's sick, it's disgusting, it's a violation of parental rights, but more importantly it's, it is a, uh, an act of government that in the mind of a child uh, is nothing less than abuse itself. 
very traumatic abuse for a child that age uh, to be strip searched and photographed by uh, a, a stranger. Um, they, the it's 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 extremely uh, disturbing, and, and we at Pacific Justice uh, have have uh, stepped in on this. Help me understand here, because I, I would imagine. Under any set of circumstances, whether the authorities are the police or the authorities, in this case, might either be a school employee or a social worker, doesn't there have to be some sort of of um, reasonable cause here? There's got to be something to 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 justify this. And while I think always, particularly in this day and age, that an overabundance of caution ought to be exercised in cases of um, Concerned or, or or a suspected rather child abuse, but but you know where where does the line drawn between the overabundance of caution in protecting the child versus making sure that in that process we are not violating said child's rights or quite frankly the the rights of the parents? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, some states like Oklahoma, for example, and other states have uh, adopted uh, recommended uh, uh, law changes uh, that uh, we at Pacific Justice have. Uh, have suggested, and, um, and that's been fantastic, where it's a healthy balance of due process, protection for the parents and the family, at the same time uh, making sure that children who have reasonable, where there's truly reasonable suspicion of abuse or neglect, are given uh, adequate protection. California has rejected uh, all of the due process recommendations uh, that we've uh, come up with. Other states have, have adopted them. Uh, but and that's one reason why we at Pacific Justice Institute, Craig, have uh, produced a, um, a paper. It's called, it's called the 12 Steps to Protect Your Children uh, from CPS, and uh, they can download it from free, for free straight from our website under the uh, upper tag resources uh, and parents. They can find it, but uh, it's it's parents need to know what they what they need to uh, what what they can do and what their rights are. But this situation, you know, in Colorado, Denver, Colorado, uh, the parents had no notice. Uh, this was all done at school. There wasn't a nurse, a doctor there. These are just employees and a, and a social worker uh, just stripping this child. So, uh, you know, there, there is, unless we reform the system, these kinds of things are going to continue to happen, not just in Denver, Colorado, but in other places across the country. And, my goodness, in a case like this, not only there are concerns about the violation of the, the uh, parents' parental rights, but... <laughs> right to privacy for the child as well. I mean, shouldn't any parent have the right to say, okay, let's say it's a criminal uh, investigation of some sort, which I want to emphasize this was not. Isn't there nevertheless a, some kind of a, a, a compelling requirement that would say that there needs to either be an attending physician or an authority of the court who is there watching this opposed to just somebody who says, oh, we think the father looks like a, a tattooed out hell's angel and he must be no good, up to no good because he looks suspicious. Let's check the child. I mean, come on. That's crazy. Oh, it is. It is. And the system is, has way too much discretion for uh, social workers based on their own bias and prejudice. In fact, uh, sadly enough, in California uh, and in other states, um, the, stu- the studies show that if someone is of a minority race, like African-American or perhaps Latino, they are more likely to be investigated and, pos- and have their child taken upon investigation than a child, say, from a Caucasian family or an Asian family background. Um, so there's that personal bias, prejudice is already there. Um, at the very least, we can do is implement some safeguards 
to require, like you like you mentioned, um, the existence of a, of a of an RN or a doctor, some medical profession of uh, some of the medical profession who understands, um, you know, proper uh, touching, proper non-touching, and and um, picture taking and and things like this that are clearly violating the, the, the fundamental privacy of this little girl. Uh, that and these these pictures are still there. They're in in the files of her naked body and. Um, you know, it's it's uh, and those will and they will probably remain there uh, indefinitely, uh, even though there was no abuse or, or neglect found, or even a reasonable suspicion of it found. And that's what's really troubling about this, is because there is, uh, at the end of the day, a very weak, unspecific allegation, and there's no real reasonable suspicion here. So you know, who's to say under the right circumstances and the wrong hands? That this, you know, in an effort to try and protect the child, doesn't wind up end up abusing the child. Oh, absolutely. And 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 this material is not uh, protected. You think it with proper privacy would have uh, proper protection, but this material is accessible to all kinds of government employees who want to look open the file, open the file and look at it. Um, so it's 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 very problematic. Uh, the our affiliate attorney there in, in uh, Colorado. Uh, has a real heart for this. She's doing an uh, absolutely fantastic job as lead counsel. And, of course, we at Pacific Justice Institute have filed a separate front of the court brief, hoping that the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, will uh, rule properly and reverse the lower courts, uh, ignoring the facts. Wow. Um, You know, again, we always want to err on the side of caution when it comes to protecting children, but here seems to be a case where, in an effort to do that, uh, the the child sadly wound up being the victim. We appreciate um, not only the insight, but also uh, standing on behalf of the child and its family. Again, this is a case out of Colorado. Uh, thankfully, uh, not happening here in uh, in California, but huh, you know our state. More information available on the web, pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And our thanks, as always, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for that update. Six o'clock, right on the dot. Let's get you updated on traffic. And uh, we'll do that right now with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.